This is episode 16. We all tell stories. In this episode, we talk to Jared Surf, creator of the Here Be Tigers podcast, master storyteller, and writing coach. We recorded this episode in 2020, in the height of the COVID pandemic. We talk about what it means to create and tell stories, common issues that plague creatives, and how he came up with the name for both his book and his company, Here Be Tigers. We're excited to announce that we just released to Amazon Music, so check us out there if you want to give our ratings a boost. This is the Language of Creativity Podcast. How you doing, Jared? Ah, fighting with doctors. Oh, man. Well, I tell you what, it's great that we're finally getting to do this. I'm really excited. Yeah, no, it's been a while. Um, let me warm up my smoker's lungs. <laughs> I was listening to audio from an interview I'd done last year, and there's just this rich, deep baritone, and I'm going, ah, <laughs> I had that voice. I, I know, won't... and just losing the way you speak has got to be so difficult with putting a barrier between you and your work. I can't imagine. When I was teaching out at USC, and I had been working outdoors for a good amount of time, coaching children at a sports camp. The camp I worked at was acres, acres wide. And the folks at the far end always knew where my group was <laughs> because they could hear me. Yeah. It, I was kind of dealing with that a little bit with migraines because it's like you have all this stuff that you want to do. And then all of a sudden your body's like nope. a limitation. And I was so unaccustomed to that. It's been quite a ride trying to learn how to navigate around that and to care for myself in ways that I wouldn't think of because I'm used to working really hard yeah. all the time. And migraines. The devil with migraines is they have multiple causes. They're hard to diagnose for an individual and treatment effectiveness varies massively. <laughs> yeah. And the treatment can sometimes cause problems. That's what oh, I just yeah. went through. Hmm. I had a... Just to update you, I was dealing with a busy week. My son had just started homeschool and he was coming to work with me. In the middle of the week, I'm solving a work problem. We're getting ready to go in. And I get a text from my wife that says, a child in our daughter's daycare was diagnosed oh. with COVID and we are quarantined. I have a class in three minutes. I'll talk to you after. <laughs> And so I quickly just said, okay, I hung up with the work problem. I said, I got to deal with this later. I told them briefly what happened. I said, okay, I'm going to go out and meditate because I need to center myself before this mm -hmm. oncoming storm. And so my wife picked up my daughter. They got home. My son's going, why aren't we leaving? I'm ready to go. And so we had to sit him down and let him know that his birthday party at my mom's house was canceled. <laughs> And so, of course, crying hysterics, no, this isn't fair. Mm -hmm. I mean, he went through all the stages of grief um, where he's like packing his stuff up and sitting by the door like, we're leaving. Nope, we're going. And I'm like, oh, buddy. When you were a child, all of life is waiting for Godot. Yeah. <laughs> so we dealt with that. And I took my second migraine pill for that day because I'm like, I got to stay on top of this migraine. And within three minutes, 
I start to talk like this. Have you done like the whole EKG, the uh, CAT scan and everything to see if there's anything internal? So that's what happens. Yeah. <laughs> Literally, you know, I'm slurring speech. I know it's a migraine symptom of mine, but I've never had it like this before. I start having trouble standing up. And so I'm like, hun, I got to yep. rest. So I go upstairs go. and I call the uncall doctor. And of course she freaks. She's like, you realize you're slurring your words, right? And I'm like, yeah, uh huh. Mm-hmm. you need to call 911 right now. And I'm like, this is a migraine symptom. I know I've had this before. So I kind of tell her what's going on. And I'm just like, oh. Am I going to the ER tonight Mm -hmm. in the middle of a pandemic? Mm -hmm. Is it really even wise? You know, because if I am having heart symptoms, do I even want to be exposed to COVID? Like for real? Because I was pretty sure my daughter didn't have COVID, which turned out she didn't. So then I can't get my family to drive because my wife's got the kids. Can't get my family to drive me to the ER because they don't want to be exposed to COVID, right? You know, my mom's got asthma. My brother's like, oh, hell no, I'm not, I'm not, that's how you get COVID. I'm like, well, hey, you know, at least I'm glad you're being careful because he's a 20 something. And so I'm like, fine, I'll drive myself. So I drove myself to the ER. Thank God it was empty. They did the CT scan and it was completely clear. So I wasn't having a stroke or no risk of stroke, which was great. And then the doctor said, well, you have complex migraines. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> I'm like, great. Okay. That's awesome. But I got the CT scan. So that happened. And then later the next week I started having heart symptoms, but you know, chest pains and weakness and all that kind of stuff. So I did, I had the EKG the following week and mm-hmm. the doctor and I think it's from stress and anxiety of just like everything happening mm-hmm. at once. But it was the same thing. I had to call the doctor's office and be like, no, I need to talk to my actual doctor because he knows my symptoms. Mm -hmm. And then it was getting him to say, all right, we'll schedule an EKG in the office. You don't need to go to ER to do it. So I got cleared for that. Like heart is strong. I'm healthy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, basically just my body going, I'm out. (laughs) I'm done. You can deal with it later. Not me. Yeah. So I was just, oh, so that's what I went through the last, like I would say two weeks plus the three weeks that I was adjusting with having online school from work. I got about an hour and a half of work done in two weeks during that period. (laughs) So I'm finally getting caught up. I'm so excited to have this time with you because this just worked out perfect. So I don't know if this is because I have a friend going through a similar situation in Germany. It took me five years to find the cause for my migraines and vertigo. And pure happenstance, I went to the eye doctor, a new one, who happened to be a doctor in a head trauma ward prior to becoming an optician on his own. And we were doing, you know, just a regular eye test. And he goes, your visual input is misaligned. And I went, what? And he goes, yeah, it doesn't look like it's the eyeball itself, but apparently, however, it's going through the nerves and relaying from there, what you see doesn't line up between the two eyes. And he showed me this. He said, that is a likely reason for why, particularly as you're tired and stressed, you experience severe migraines and vertigo because your brain cannot figure out why the world does not fit into place. Okay. So that's so interesting (laughs) because I have amblyopia. Okay. No one can see it. Unless I think one time I was doing a, a audition class for yeah. commercials and they saw it on camera. They're like, do you know you have lazy eye? And I was like, uh, yeah, because lazy eye is one form of it. In this case, I had a severe head trauma a few years ago. Oh, I've had multiple severe head traumas. I played ice hockey. (laughs) Yeah. So one of the things he said is that more often, well, not more often than not, but 
fairly often in severe head trauma, particularly if it's the kind where you black out or repeated head trauma, you damage the optical nerves or the part of the brain that processes that. Wow. So it's what they did. And the reason you see new glasses on, they put in corrective prisms, which basically take the light and redirect it so that what I see realigns before anything gets, you know, processed or understood by a higher level of consciousness. So so is that why when I take my sunglasses that are polarized, I put it on my bad eye and just tilt it at a 45 degree angle, the whole world makes more sense? That might actually be part of the issue for you. I mean, I'm not an optician, but we put on, you know, we tried the lenses. The day I put them on, I they had to correct the first batch, but I put the second one on, I'm going, all that jaw tension I've had for five years faded. Well, most of it, the rest is stress. <sighs> but more importantly, everything's where it's supposed to be. <laughs> wow. And you know, that's the thing that drives me crazy is that I know my body and it's like you go to the doctors and they look at things from such a limited perspective and they just go, well, you know, there's nothing wrong with you. I don't see what your problem is. And it's kind of hard to navigate a complex set of features that have an unknown cause. Yeah, because migraines are a symptom of many things and a lot of them are dreadful. So of course they try to rule those out, but with specialists, once they've ruled out the things they know to look for, they're going, mm, stress. Yeah, the stress diagnosis is a funny thing because what are you going to do? Just do nothing? Like at some point you have to make a living and then pretty soon the stressor is I can't work. <laughs> so I just, yeah, I think stress is a funny diagnosis. It is. It is a cause behind a lot of things. And I've enjoyed looking at the link between neuroplasticity and cognitive behavioral thought loops and mind-body awareness connection. So the pain management aspect, I think, is a big factor for creatives because, especially because you work with artists and you know that a lot of the impetus behind writing or creating art for a lot of people is a swarm of pain management. It's an emotional outlet. So you're actually, there is that mind-body connection. There is that emotional body that we have. And what's interesting is you can sort of channel that into art. And I think that's what I've <laughs> related to a lot of people who enjoy art have been sharing with me of like, hey, this art helped me process something that I couldn't put words to. So I have a lot to say about the role of suffering and creation because people have a good number of misconceptions pertaining to it. We'll get there. The thing you just reminded me of, I met an oncologist at one of these podcasting media summits a few years ago. And we tend to think of artists as being the ones who have to do with pain management and suffering and angst and <laughs> either drowning that through some vice or otherwise shoving it into the work. But he pointed out something fascinating to me, a phenomenon he had noticed in his patients. And particularly among the wealthy women he would treat, the husbands, as the diagnosis worsened, would more and more would increasingly distance themselves from their wives by going on work and business trips and creating new companies, things they had power and control over still. Whoa. And what he sat back and said was, I can't treat just my patient if the spouse, husband or wife, partner, right, is divorcing themselves from the hell of this life because they have now power or control over it. Oh my God. And they're, they're trying to chase that somewhere else so that they can still feel like they're providing somehow. And 
when I had to present, right, the business I had not yet created that is Here Be Tigers at the, the New Media Summit a few years ago, I had been working on my pitch, but I still didn't have the reason, the thing that draws people in, right? right. And I was talking to my friend, Julie Sayant, who is our next episode in Tigers coming out this month. And I don't remember what she said that prompted it, but my reply was, you know, it's funny. We all tell ourselves stories of who we are and why. What we forget is that we have the power and to define them. Exactly. And that is as true for a creative, for a storyteller of any kind as it is for someone in their everyday life. So that's where I sat down, listened to myself and the presentation, the feedback, which was wildly appreciative I had after I pitched. And I said, I said to myself and to others as well, the difference I'm hearing here, right? I gave an idea, but it didn't speak just to the head. It went to the heart first. Right. And then from there, from that emotional reaction, people connected it to a goal and a want, a desire they had and a thing they wanted to accomplish. And <laughs> so there's a little bit of, uh, I suppose, not serendipity, but maybe that here, or synchronicity, I guess we could say. I'm doing talks right now with my friend Nicholas Laurie, who's a neuroscientist, to dig more into the Laurie neuroscientist, to dig into the actual brain work on how stories function why they matter to us, why we rely on them, and what they do both in the neurochemical sense as well as in the way we remember and construct our lives. It's so true. Yeah, because we're always telling ourselves stories about ourselves. And we orient ourselves in the world based on our setting of what we believe are our conditions of the story, right? David Foster Wallace, This is Water spends a great deal of time in that essay talking about how we make other people characters in our lives and ultimately how we do that for ourselves as well, right? So here's a silly example. If I say the phrase squirrel people, who do you think of? Uh, probably the chipmunks. <laughs> right. This is the context for it. I was driving one day and there were these people who always seemed to be in gray cars who would stop at the wrong time or get into the middle of the road when they shouldn't, like squirrels. Oh, right. And the more I talk to people who lived in my environment and say squirrel people, right? They go, oh yeah, folks like that. And then once you have a character archetype, you start seeing them everywhere. Even when they're not drawing, you're in the grocery store. Who's the person that does the dumb thing when they shouldn't? And then I started to think about it and go, you know what? We get mad at all the idiots in our lives. We forget how often we are the idiot. <laughs> because it only takes that brief, stupid moment of thing we're just not mindful of or really truly there for, for whatever reason, right? Right. And as Wallace was saying, we get to choose in that moment of time. We won't necessarily know the actual reason why, but we get to choose the story we prescribe, the one we use to define what's happening here and how we react accordingly. And it's rather liberating to realize you don't have to attach yourself to the worst version of the world all the time. Yes. Yeah, I agree. We have so much power over even how we frame an event in our minds, whether we're the hero or the victim in the story. I, uh, I've worked in corporate for a number of years as a consultant and an advisor. I burnt out a bit on that. I tend to work a lot with creatives now, although there's a good number of creative folk in the business world, too, that I like to participate in their projects with. 
I'll, I'll say it this way. I am by nature an iconoclast, and I do not like having a large hierarchy above me. So the cubicle was my hell. <laughs> yeah. I, I had to learn in my 20s this was not the life I wanted. I remember being interviewed by Angelo Azara, this chief branding officer of OMD, for a position to work directly under him. And in the first five minutes, he said, you don't want to work for me. And I was maybe 24 or five, and I was maybe 26, and I was horrified because this was a great <laughs> job. I'm going, of course I do. He goes, no, you don't. Everything you like about this is not what I want to do with this position. And you'd be happier somewhere else entirely. So I'll put you in touch with the VP of HR. You know, you can talk with him. But this doesn't feel like this is the place you'll be happy in your life. And I was so, so deeply mad. But you know what? He was right. I can imagine so many people in our audience can relate to the cubicle hell. I was talking to a client of mine yesterday and he was saying, I have this temp job and it's amazing. And I'm like, well, you know, any job that I've ever had that lasts longer than six months feels like an eternity. And he goes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I have had so many titles, teacher, journalist, PR, marketing, et cetera. And what I finally realized after that moment at the New Media Summit and talking to folks afterwards about what I do and why is that I'm a storyteller, someone who teaches, entertains, and guides the folks in my tribe. Why? To inspire a course of action, a thought, or remember something by. That's all storytellers have done culturally, historically, throughout time. Yeah. When it's such an important role, it strikes me, I've mentioned this in the podcast before, but Daniel Pink's book, A Whole New Mind, where he goes into automation and talks about how the jobs of the future are going to be right-brained jobs, and they're going to feature around storytelling because he gave this example of two bottles of wine. Well, actually, there were 20 or 30 bottles of wine that were all in the $15 price range, and basically they're all Shiraz or whatever he wanted, and he looks at the bottles, and some have nice artwork, whatever, and he gets this one, and he turns it around, and there's a story about how these brothers founded a winery mm -hmm. after their father died of cancer. And that they, um, you know, found purpose and, and healing through making wine and growing grapes. And that that was their legacy that they wanted to leave. And that, you know, every portion of whatever bottle went to charity or whatever. And he says, the other bottle says, this wine contains limited sulfites and blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and he said, which bottle of wine do you think that I bought? The one you connect to emotionally. That That's finds right. a way into your heart. I... I'm going to talk with my friend Nick about this, Nico, later about this. But in terms of science, in terms of pragmatics, and this is surface level. I'm not going to go into the neurochemicals or anything. Stories are how we attach emotions to patterns of information and the things we perceive. The stronger the emotion and the more often it happens, the more impactful that memory. And how we choose to arrange those memories, right? That's the story. We, I like to think of it this way. We say the word remembering, and I think it's important to think to view it as the word remembering, because when you return to a thing you have in your mind, you are reconstructing and revising that story again and again, looking at it from a new light. One of the best exercises, this came from an art history teacher of all people. He said, I want you to go home and look at your family photo albums. Good. Now I want you to think about how little of your life, of your time together that represents and mm. why you chose just those few individual beats, moments, slices, and what story that tells that is not the entirety of the life that was beheld, right? And 
that first class, he sat us down with a picture of Fabio and a picture of Michelangelo's David. Mm-hmm. He said, what's the difference? And someone said, well, it's beautiful classical art. It's lasted the ages. That's just a guy with flowy hair. He said, sure, but aren't they both photos? Representing yeah. the thing that is somewhere else, framed in a certain light to show certain things based on the mind of the person who took them at the time. And what story emerges out of our perception of that, right? Because stories exist. They can exist, but they don't survive until someone else brings them to life, the moment they pick them up. I, my students like to ask me, how do I t- where to begin, right? How do I tell a story? And I'll give a great example from N.K. Jemison's The Broken Earth series. This goes to your Shiraz bottle example. You read that book, it's about all kinds of fantastic contrivances in the far-flung future. But the first few pages, a woman walks into her house, finds her child dead, and realizes her husband's the one who committed the crime, mm-hmm. and decides... In her grief, I'm going to kill him. Then steps outside and the world is ending and decides, I'm going to kill him anyway. Right. <laughs> and my thought was, the, the grief was raw. It was there on the page. We didn't get to hide from any of it. And then as she looked outside, saw the world was ending and said, I don't care. If revenge is the last thing I get, I'm getting it. Right. And I'm sitting going, okay, now I want to know what happens and why. Exactly. It's like this idea that once you open a story loop, you have to, as a human, know what happens next. You leave people hanging. It's the idea of the cliffhanger, right? You know, you open a, you open a cliffhanger and then someone's going to click that binge watch that series because there's something about the power of story that our brains are hardwired to receive. There, and list. You guys at home think we're talking entirely about the artistic side or the humanities of this. In business, this maps onto brand identity, engagement, customer journey, your story, when we find it, and the one you make with us, right? Our story, the one that matters to me ultimately. I drink your bottle of Shiraz, but in what context, one part of my life? How do I share that with my friends? What memories do I create and experiences do I derive from this thing you've provided? Exactly. And that is not a linear path that has a loop. Because if I enjoyed that or I didn't, if it was impactful either way, I'm going to continue on a path accordingly. Right. right? Maybe I buy the straws again. Maybe I share it with my friends. Maybe I... Oh, if, my friend and I, before we moved, we had this joke we'd run. There was a, a building next to his that had a rooftop garden. Had the trellises, the barbecue, the perfectly wooden tables, the kind of place you see in all those New York City movies where the happy groups are all chilling out, they're looking at the skyline. Yes. And we said, I know this is highly illegal. This is definitely trespassing, but I kind of want to just do a barbecue on it and then they find <laughs> us and invite them there. It's like we, we couldn't help ourselves. You created something too irresistible. Yeah. We had to put a life and a story to it. Exactly. Well, let's talk about artists for a minute, because you consult with writers, particularly for a living with your company here, Be Tigers. And I'm most fascinated by how, what drives us to (laughs) do these things. And that's part of the impetus behind the show is I literally had a listener who said she was telling uh, her mom about me. She goes, yeah, but what does he really do for a living? (laughs) And so like, that's, I mean, that's the thing. It's almost like we have this thing that we have to do. And then we try to maybe reverse engineer a way to make a living out of it. And so I know you have a lot of clients who come to you and say, 
all right, so I have this story and I want to be great at it. What's next? How do I do this? So tell me a little bit more about, and I want to go deep. Like I want to explore even the psychology behind this because I come from a music perspective, working with artists, helping them bring out the idea that they have that they don't even know some of the steps they're going to take to get there, but they know they have this vision and you have to sort of almost catch that out of the air and somehow make it material. So I hear you doing that with stories. My grandmother always had this dream, the, the holy Jewish trifecta in her family, the doctor, the lawyer, and the accountant. <laughs> and she was waiting for me to be one of those three. And when I went to grad school, and you know, that's at that point, you're pursuing your degree in novel, film, television, et cetera. I'm a writer, right? And she kind of understood, but not entirely at the time. And we would talk about it occasionally and passed her a few of the things I wrote. She died a few years ago, and I wasn't able to be there with me mm. because of my own injuries and illness. And I think some of what we talked before, in the midst of all that testing and analysis, they weren't sure if I could fly, right? So, right. I uh, we had to go up to the funeral in Portsmouth, and she had this dresser drawer of things that she had locked away for after she passed, and within them was a poem she wanted to have read, one that she wrote. And I spoke to my folks afterwards, and it turns out she had always wanted to write more in her life, but had married young. She was brilliant, graduated high school at sixteen. You could not beat her in poker. She was so good at math. Oh, wow. Just so adept and astute. She would have gone into the sciences, some type of STEM work now, right? But this right. is 80-some years ago. Right. So and Not very many people did that. No. Okay. She married a soldier, had her kids. He mm. passed, raised family, and just kept on going with life because that's what you had. And I remember looking at that poem afterwards wishing I had a greater chance to talk to her because of everyone in my family. She was the first one to read what I wrote and understand it. And mm. I think for those of us who do this for most of our life, because you can write for a hobby, you can write for the enjoyment and the fun of it, you can do it for work, and still be fully, deeply, richly creative about that. It's not like there is a, a tier or a grade here where the artiste is the pinnacle of that evolution yeah there are reasons to engage in creative activity right it can be gainful or it could be just for you it, it, that part doesn't matter it gets in the way sometimes but it's not <laughs> it, it doesn't it really doesn't matter I, that's the most freeing thing you can do is realize that you're going to make this art whether you get paid or not <laughs> i have been writing since i was two wow yeah we have poems from 1985 that i dictated to my family I have books that I bound by hand and sold door to door. Huh. The first one was called "And Then the Castle Died." It was a it was a picture book of this group of people, knights, soldiers, peasants, and everything else, building a castle. And then at the end, I forget why, but it fell apart. And the only last line of the book was "dot dot dot." And then the castle died. Oh, and it's fascinating because. Even at that age, death, time, and memory were the themes I wrote about. Uh -huh. I, uh, well, and a hell of a way to end a story at three years old or four, whatever age you were. <laughs> wow. 
I was a precocious child. I was born premature too. But, you know, there's during the AIDS epidemic, we saw friends of my family in the hospital dying of it and everything else in the city at that time. We had a friend who had Lou Gehrig's disease that disappeared from our lives, my first godmother, because she was a, a model and an actress and incredibly vain and didn't want to see anyone, want anyone to see her and her mind wither away. Oh. So she just vanished one day. All right. The heartbreaking. Yeah. And this is where I get back to what I said earlier about suffering and creativity, because there is this perception, right? And I bring it up now because so many of my students and my clients come to me with it. This belief that angst inspires. Right. It does not. Pain is pain. It is awful. It sucks. It's inevitable. It happens. When I went through the most recent bout of death, injury, illness, and so on over the past five years, there was a stretch for a year and a half I didn't write. Hmm. I just could not put words to the paper, to the page, and when I did, I couldn't remember why. And at the end of this, I had a dream. And I'd been struggling for a long time over how to deal with my book, which was, let's be honest, three books that I tried to make into one. Mm-hmm. I spent years quite writing. common. Yeah. yeah. It's been years writing and revising, but I know from the business end, pushing out an omnibus work of a thousand plus pages as your first text. <laughs> Good luck. Yeah. Especially the now. Then the question became, right, if it's three books or two books, right? Even what's that ending that compels, that inspires, that makes you want to find the next one and continue to learn why? I knew I didn't have that. So I woke up from this dream. And it was so rich and so deep and so vivid. I remember writing it down on my notepad, writing it down on my phone, recording it when I couldn't focus anymore on those just to capture what I could. And then I sat back and realized it had absolutely nothing to do at the time with the book I was writing. And I was <laughs> deeply frustrated because in my heart, I felt that the compulsion, the call, this is it. There's a thing here, right? Yeah. That we all feel as creatives that makes us sit down and write or draw, or compose. I'm using right here, by the way, as a placeholder for the means by which you express what you're trying to create. It's correct, yeah. Could be podcast, it could be yeah. sing, it could be mm, I transcribed notes on a paper. I have on my Instagram illustrations I do of the characters I write about because I need to see them at some point in time. I need to see their faces. Huh. I've been an artist for most of my life too, so that's part of how I express what I feel and perceive. So. I had this ending. It had, well, I had this dream. It had nothing in my at that time to do with what I thought was my book. And then here's a lesson I'll give to you because it's one I give to my students. And this isn't mine, but it's one I find incredibly useful. This comes from the humorist, essayist, and podcast host, John Hodgman. Specificity is the soul of narrative, right? I can sit here and talk about generalities, build a long day. Here's the gist of the dream it's a king and his son older man, son 16, at that age, right, where you don't want to be a part of any of this. Right. We walk down through the Palisades, there's a library or some other state building, into the plaza, there's the fountain, the crowds, the cars, the cameras waiting there. The kid wants nothing to do with this. Clearly, it's some type of coronation announcement or some other big thing has been declared. The attention should be placed on the son, the prince, but he doesn't want to be a part mm. of that. The father's still so proud, though. Mm -hmm. And as they're walking down, there's this eruption, this smoke, this burst from further down in the plaza 
he sees his son, the king. And I knew even in the dream, I'm working, I'm seeing this from his point of view, right? He right. sees his son distracted by that. And then comes the blast and everyone's screaming and shouting, running this way and that. And he can't find his son. And so he reaches out, catches him for a glimpse. And in that moment, he sees not the 16-year-old, but a five-year-old and even his five-year-old son. And even in the dream, I had this moment of, is this a different time or is this just how he sees his son? Oh, right. And I didn't know, but I kept on following the dream. Finally, he pushes, breaks through the crowd, grabs onto his son, 16 years old, who's chiding him. You're the king. You're in charge. You have to lead them through this. And I forget the exact flow of the lines, but his final reply is, then let them see. You're my son. All, everything else he is and could have and should have been in that moment, I don't care. You're my son. Right. And I woke up from their dream at that moment and went, I see this. This is real. This happens in the story, but there's nowhere in the story for it to happen. So I wrestled. <sighs> and this is, this is often where my customers, my students, my clients come to me, that point where they've hit confusion or inertia. I've got a thing. I don't know what to do with it. I'm stuck. I don't know where to go. I have too much, which is right. They've told me the character details aren't good. They told me the flow isn't there. There's a, there's a point where I just cannot do anymore because I'm, I am so afraid of what I will break or change irrevocably. Right. Yeah, that happens musically too. I know exactly what you're talking about. And so I do the only safe thing, which is nothing. Hmm. Because you know what that's like. Frustrating. Mm -hmm. I mean, as it is. When it is. Sometimes you can sit with something for two years and do nothing. Your whole life. Or your whole life. And, you know, that's funny because let's talk about Jung for a second. Because when you're doing soul work, you're looking at things like your dream, which would be the inner child perspective of yourself, or in this case, the father's perspective of the son as a younger child, which is how he's emotionally connected. And to me, sometimes the way through is not an objective move. Sometimes it's a subjective shift in the way you view yourself or the way you rectify something within yourself. In the case, the story of the dream with the son who does not want to do anything with the kingdom or his father or his father's dreams. And so that internal shift has to be examined in order to shift the work, in order to change the, the whole approach to the concrete artistry that has to be done, right? I'm sure you've had this when you've composed, right? You have an idea for what kind of music, what kind of genre, what kind of tone or feel you're trying to evoke. And then the thing you're creating doesn't want to live that life. Yes, all the time. <laughs> I, I follow story from characters. They are what define what happens if things weird or unusual or fantastic occur. That's part of the story. It's not my goal, personally, to write horror or fiction or sci-fi or fantasy. I enjoy those, but that's not what I set out to write. And so when I found the fantastic fighting to survive, to live, to thrive on the page, I kept putting it to the side. And I woke up from this dream. And I knew on that deep, raw level, this is right. I don't know why, but I know it's right. And you have to train yourself, one, to understand and hear. Well, first to hear that, but second to understand why and trust it. Because there's one right. good field. Confusion is the first step toward clarity. It's okay to be afraid, to not know, to be uncertain. Yeah. Because if you give yourself to ask, what if, you'll find why. And that's a hard place to be in. 
I spend with some of my students a good deal of time just working them through that part of the process, not even the work itself, but the life of being a creative. And Right, because it's scary. You know, it's funny, a very esoteric example of that, which is something that I've been learning, was a friend of mine used the example of the tarot card, the Two of Swords, which is the lady who's blindfolded and she's got two swords crisscrossed across her chest in an X fashion. Mm -hmm. And it kind of exemplifies that archetype of uh, uncertainty, like being lost in a fog, not knowing where you are. And the message that was given to me was, be comfortable in that. Actually, this is a good thing. Enjoy it. Learn to embrace the moment of uncertainty because the moment you do, you're no longer fighting it and you're actually allowed to discover what comes. You fundamentally cannot find what you're trying to create if you only are only willing to hold on to what you've made. Yeah. Have to... And so I did. I, I sat down for that week and I went, as I've so often done with my students and my clients too, all right, I don't know why yet. I'm going to give myself that time. And I'm not going to force it. I'm going to set aside some time to reflect, to think, to let that reside in my brain while I do the rest of my work. Because you don't have to be consciously aware of the thought. You can ask the question and you will subconsciously continue to work on it. Sometimes it emerges into dreams. I know, for instance, I ride on the trail. I can reach a point where I can continue working for four hours on a sentence. My last episode was talking about that in part. When I'm at that point, I know to stop because that is me being a perfectionist and destroying exactly. my state. So I know that's my disruptive habit and behavior and how to put a, how to acknowledge and go, okay, where am I at? What do I not know? What I trust myself to find out later on, because I know I will. And so two or three days later, I'll find it. But in this case, it took a week. And I, I ran out of the shower, that literal eureka moment, right? <laughs> Grabbed my voice recorder. And I said, yes, there is no, there's a war in the past. There wasn't a kingdom, but there could have been just as well, because most of what I've written about that was from the folks who were overthrowing the powers that be. It's quite possible. What if there is or was a kingdom? What if that was the king and the prince at that time of that? What if that blast is part of their first awareness of what's happening outside, right? Keep going there. Who has that relationship in the story, Adam and his father? Were they alive then? No, but I have other characters like ones now back then. So let's just see if maybe their ancestors or something else like. Let's allow these things to be true, right? Right. And as I followed through, I found the end of the book. Hmm. And when I sat down, it was deeply fantastic. There was a, a genuine fairy tale like element to it. And sure enough, when I went to Lisbon to talk to my friends for my friend Nick's wedding, I told him this with his fiance, and he goes, Thank you. Eleven years. Thank you. I told you eleven years ago. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I, I know, but it took me those 11 years to understand why and accept it. Well, yes. And thank you for saying that because uh, that is the thing that happens is like someone plants a seed, but it takes time for you to go through the journey internally 
and to realize something. And I know that as a coach, just as you know that as a coach, you might be working with a client for two years and you might say something at the beginning. They just go, huh, and then they forget about it. But then it sort of comes to fruition down the line. I got to give my wife some credit because she said things 11 years ago that she's like, you're just now getting this because someone else told you it really. (laughs) But I think that's totally true. So what was the thing, do you remember, that your friend told you back then, all those years ago? Let's see. I don't know if I recall the phrasing, but I had gone through what the story was, probably the second draft, I guess, at the time when I just arrived at the end of the book, which was three books. And he said, that sounds like a lot of stuff that happens to that poor guy. Do you know why? Hmm. I said, no, not entirely. And more importantly, the joy wasn't there. There's a great article, which I've shared before, by George Saunders, where he reflects on his writing. And at what point he gave up the stuff that he felt was childish and for his previous life as a writer to do and make art, to pursue only the, you know, not to create commercially, but only to pursue beauty, to pursue the genuine art. Hmm. And what his mentor said to him was, great, but, you know, don't lose the magic. Hmm. And here's Saunders years later going, and I spent 20, 30 years writing a lot of beautiful stuff that no one liked that lost the magic. Right. And he has incredible prose, some weird, quirky, deep, and rich characters. But it's, it's very difficult to like them or in some ways to engage in the story, to find joy anywhere in it. And... Part of, I think, the beauty of what you and I do, of what coaches with guides do, right, is we help folks arrive there faster than they would on their own. And the, So instead of taking 11 years, instead of taking two years, you can come to me. We can find where you're at now. Are you trying to create your tale? Are you trying to make it come to life? Are you trying to bring it back to your tribe? Are you in your business at that point of identifying what your brand is, what your story? your story, the thing people will like and engage and connect themselves to is, are you trying to figure out where that attachment happens or how they can create their own experience from that? The fundamentals of what makes for a good story don't change because as we said, we by our own nature crave and desire them. We want patterns that make sense and explain things. Yeah. Humans are meaning makers. You go to, I cannot do the pronunciation right, but I think it's Goboko Pateli or something like that, Tepish, one of the oldest temples, so to date, underground found in, I believe, Turkey. There are glyphs that are <laughs> ancient. They're still trying to puzzle out the meaning too. There, when I was in Australia, speaking to some of the local Aboriginals, they explained to me, there were stories they told depending on what kind of life you were going to live and at what point you were in your life, at in your life. Mm knowledge and wisdom about the world. So somewhere, for example, that's the watering hole. Monsters are there. Don't go there. Right. If you don't need to be near the watering hole, we tell you the story that keeps you away from the watering hole. Right, right. If you the watering hole, don't stand downwind so the animals can't tell you're there. Mm-hmm. It's better to tell you a different, richer story. If you're a foreigner, this is our sacred place. We don't go to your sacred places without invitation. Please do the same for us. It's Mm-hmm. There are deeply pragmatic reasons they tell these stories, but they are also all true. Mm. 
The monsters in this case, if you chase the food away, if you spoil the water, are fear, hunger, starvation. Right, right. Broken your group because you have ruined what they need to sustain themselves on. So there's a... So what what about like Santa Claus? That's a cultural (laughs) story that we tell. And it must serve some sort of purpose. My brother's special needs. He's on the spectrum. They most recently diagnosed him with Asperger's. And I'm laughing because he reached that point in his life where believing in Santa Claus was something that would inspire mockery. Mm -hmm. You're 18 and in high school. It's difficult to sustain that type of childlike belief the way you did as a child and have others respect you. I'm not saying there was their failure to respect you as a we're not great people when we're teenagers. Let's put it that way. <laughs> we're capable of great things and many awful because we are still not fully capable of understanding the consequences of either. And it's the blossoming of the ego self and autonomy <laughs> without the empathy. <laughs> I was watching Chop with some friends the other day and I said, Do all 20 somethings think they can save the world? Yeah. And I realized, I think they have to think that. Otherwise, they wouldn't make it to 30. Well, yeah, the sense of invincibility is a hallmark of teenage and 20-something, yeah? When your body is still young and healthy and you haven't touched the limitations we were talking about earlier, unless you are a rare individual who lives that path in life. Sometimes, and you have a different, a deeply different life experience by then, or someone in your life has. And uh, in my case, my father had a breakdown when I was a teenager. So he partially disappeared at that point. He's still here, but he's never been from then who he was. Hmm. And that just became life. And here I am at 12 trying to rationalize why that happens and what the effect of it is. And why it's the this is maybe five, six years after the breakdown. My brother is being ridiculed for Santa Claus, his belief in, and we're all dancing around what to do about it. How did it explain it to him? And I look and I go, Santa Claus is dead. And my brother goes, he's what? I said, think about it. When was he born? How old would he have been? Hmm. He can't be alive now, right? Mm-hmm. No. Okay. But the things he wanted folks to do, we continue to do. Oh. The practice. Wow. So in that case, Santa Claus is extremely real. He is as real to us as God in terms of how much we believe in him and what that belief and how that belief affects what we do in our lives. Yeah. Wow. So yeah, there are... Does this cause us to change how we live our lives? And yes, it is real in that sense. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, this you're touching upon the Aboriginal stories and cultural stories and that serve a purpose. This does dip our toes in Joseph Campbell quite a bit, does it not? So you can't see my bookshelf, but I've got everything from... I've got Campbell and Young on one shelf. There's Gilgamesh, uh, Ray Bradbury, Garcia Marquez, Narnia, Lovecraft, Dahl. Rothfuss and Heidegger. There's, I look into why we tell stories and how we've been. That's always been my kind of core curiosity, backgrounds in anthropology too, and communication. So 
yeah, spend a lot of time thinking about these things. But we still don't understand the, I'd say the entirety of it. What we do know is that for each of us, the stories we hold on to matter. The characters are people too. And those have real, actual, daily, lived-in consequences. You view your coworker a certain way. You treat them as a character in your life. You start to expect and perceive things will happen around them as a result of that. Then you tie into stuff like the fundamental attribution error, where, of course, anything they do wrong is likely a consequence of their own character flaws. Whereas right. anything you do wrong is a matter of circumstance because you're aware of those. Mm-hmm. And this is part of the limitations of how we tend to work as humans. Stories at their best can help us become aware and transcend the people we are in the moment we are we are that. At their worst, they are lies we hold on to because they satisfy a need we have. Yep. And I think it's important to be aware of how powerful the act is because you can just as easily make a tribe out of people who want to share and create and provide an art space for folks in a community as you can for conspiracies, for... Well... Just look at the news right now. Yeah. You can just as easily make a tribe out of police as you can the people protesting. Yep. And there's been a lot of time and research put into why we have the blue wall, right? Into And I didn't even know this at the time, but I was interviewing a, a guest a while back, Andre Rodriguez, and he said, you have to be mindful the first and many of those initial police forces were former enforcers on plantations. Mm-hmm. The history has always been messy. Mm-hmm. Motives have always been at cross purposes and complicated, or in some cases, not according to what the expectation is. You listen to these seminars where, and I'm not going to soapbox here, although I will a little, but yeah, I do think it's deeply problematic when you train a civilian peacekeeping force to perceive of civilians as a threat. Yeah. When you turn yourself into a warrior, into a hero in the story of your life, then everything else becomes a challenge to you. Right. And you become justified in your response. Mm-hmm. And that story is a deeply dangerous one. as much as it can inspire and pull you out of the worst moments in your life. I was at the PodFest earlier this year, shortly before the quarantine, and I sat down next to this fellow by happenstance, and we were talking, and he said, you know, the thing I came to realize that was passed to me by other people I was listening to, I'm not in my business the hero of my work. I'm the guy that helps my people and the people I'm working with become heroes in their lives and their work, what they do. Right. You're the guide. Yeah. Stepping outside of my own ego here, the story of my business, my money, my wealth, my income, my success, my survival, all important things, because out of that, you're providing for yourself and others too. So not to denigrate any of that. There's a reason those stories matter. Yes. There's a reason we hold 
we hold and attach ourselves to them. In the same way that we as populations identify with national pride and attach our sense of selves to that. And thus, when that feels threatened, so too do we. We find meaning and purpose, clarity, purpose, and drive by the stories that we allow ourselves to be defined by. And that's the problem. Too often we do allow ourselves to be defined by the stories we live in. Hi, everyone. This is Justin of The Oceanographers, and I just want to thank you so much for listening to this episode of Language of Creativity. I also wanted to let you know that Stephen Lovett, the host of Language of Creativity, also does amazing work as an advisor or coach. If you're looking for advice in the music industry, starting a podcast, anything related to sound, he does this through his other company, I Create Sound. For me personally, I couldn't have gotten my first album done at all without his help. Like... Seriously, I don't think the Oceanographer's album would have been completed. I was knee-deep in mix reviews and going back and forth with my mixer, and I really didn't know where I was headed, but Steven really helped me keep on track and helped me get the quality that I really wanted out of my music. If you're looking for someone that has a really great ear and will put you in the right direction, please check him out at iCreateSound.com and fill out a contact form so that he can get in contact with you and you guys can be on your way to musical bliss. All right, thanks. Well, and that's so true, especially now, because people like to identify with ideology or group, I would say ideologies have become a huge thing. Uh, what you believe or align with defines you. A friend of mine had this quote, and he probably got it from somewhere else, but I really liked it. It was to reduce someone to a concept or an idea is to do violence unto them. So in other words, we're all unique humans who have many perspectives of gray areas on many things, maybe things we care a lot about, things we care a little bit about. But the moment I say, Jared, you're a Democrat, or <laughs> Steve, you're a Republican, you have reduced me, or I have reduced you to something that is untrue. And that is violence. Yeah, you are a character and probably in a likelihood a caricature. Exactly. I'm not a Republican, by the way, nor a Democrat. <laughs> but that's what I'm frustrated with politics right now is seeing this identity that has been reduced to a name, meaning you all of a sudden agree with a hundred things. And it's impossible. No one is going to check the same box on all those things. And there's such nuance to even the most complex and unsolvable of philosophical quandaries that we find ourselves in. It's not one nor the other. There is so much nuance and humanity to it that there is, like you said, a validity to each story. So here's fundamentally, this is not a new realization. This is something we were looking at back in the 80s and 90s even as a consequence of the internet. There is more information than we can make patterns of, and from that makes sense. Exactly. And therefore, we attach ourselves to the ones that justify and satisfy and explain. And we are reluctant, by and large, to move from those because that means letting go of the answers they provide to some extent. 
going back to that place of what if to find why. And yeah, this is when we talk about creation, I and being an artist is important. I might be because it's been so long since I've read Candide, but I believe there's a chapter, if I'm not mistaken, where they encounter a sailor and his wife, right? And they travel together. And at one point, the, the sailors, they're asked the sailor, what does he do? Pangloss and Candide. And the sailor replies, I'm an artist. To which, <laughs> and he says, my art is life. And it sounds so pat, right? But his actual answer is, I try to make living an art. I try to be mindful and aware. And I'm going to go back to something one of my teachers from back in USC, James Reagan said, he's a poet, two-time Fulbright scholar, phenomenal orator. When he was teaching his poetry, he said, the first step to telling is to be aware, to simply sit there, be present, and be aware. And you have to not necessarily, I would say, suspend who you are, but allow that to be part of everything else around you, to not make a judgment or call in that moment and just receive. You'll go back to making stories out of that again anyway, because that's how we work. But the I find myself doing that so often in my work because I have to, by my own nature and the way I write, embody other characters and see what drives them and why. And I don't always agree with those motives or desires. Sometimes they are things that horrify me. And I want the story, their life, their choices to be a different way, right? There's a, a general in the, wor the work that I'm writing, Dolores. She orders a war crime that's committed to be committed. Later on in her life, she is raising one of the survivors of that. Right. Until, of course, Chekhov's gone. He isn't because that truth will come to light somehow. Right. In this case, when one of the other soldiers from that time arrives and he confronts her about it as a teenager, and in his mind, he's constructed the story prior to the fight or in that moment of her using him to redeem herself and justify her actions. And replies, no, not at all. You're here to remind me of how much of a monster I can be at times. Mm. And it's one is because that's what teenagers do, let's be honest. Mm -hmm. Tell the adults that they're monsters. And sometimes they're right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but. No, she doesn't want to forget. Right. Redemption in her case, this case, isn't something that's honestly on her mind. She committed to a choice she's willing to live by. In her mind, it was the right one, but she doesn't want to forget the choice she made and the consequences of it. So that's why she's willing to take a in. And that is not at all who I thought she would be or is. Hmm. But, and this isn't to say I think she's right even. It's, I had to step aside and, not choose for the story I'm writing, it's life. Right. It's not what your morality would do in this case, but you are allowing the story to take it there because this character is making a different set of choices. She makes awful, difficult, monstrous choices and is willing to live by them. And yeah, I could go into the whole, because of XYZ in her childhood, doesn't matter. Well, let's let's pivot for a second on something because I'd like to talk about the new weird genre for a minute because mm -hmm. I know that some of your writing is uh, 
is out there for people. And, and that's actually what people love about that genre and <laughs> exploring some of those facets of human nature. So just had to throw that into the conversation for a minute. So the genres in fiction are weird because they are essentially business tools to sell what people do for creative life. And it's a, it's a moment where, where the work of art meets the art of art. And that sounds a little clunky, but that's because it is. We have to get people to buy the story somehow. And it's easier for you to decide if you're most likely, if you're going to like a story by having a sense of what kind of story it might be a genre, right? Yeah, you, or, have to, you have to form some kind of identification because that's how we reduce the cognitive load of infinite choice. Yeah. So business being focused on profitability, sustainability, and survival. Or let's just say you want people to read your story. Right. And because you want to actually read the story and for the, the story somehow to survive, which requires someone else to engage in it, take it into their life somehow, and continue from there, you have to get it to them first. So there are some hard, pragmatic choices that go into that. And genre is one of them. My work tends to... I hate, I hate the terms, for instance, speculative fiction, literary fiction. Someone asked me, I asked one day, an expert, what does speculative fiction mean? He goes, well, speculative fiction entails books that ask what if. And my response is, so books. <laughs> just, just <laughs> stories in general. In a world Literal. where hobbits are real just, and they eat breakfast three times a day. What goes in this category? Stories that begin with in the beginning. <laughs> okay. Not a helpful category. Obviously, tons of subcategories. It was made partially from a business end to encompass science fiction, new weird, fantasy, horror, et cetera, et cetera, because they all speculate. I don't like jargon. <laughs> so I do, however, tend to, tend to lean into the horror, the weird, the scientific, or the fantastic in the stories. If you listen to my most recent episode of Tigers, I found that I, I will call them dragons because that is the easiest cognate for it. There are big, monstrous, ancient, horrifying things in the world that I did not expect to be there outside of the myths and stories about them. But then, sure enough, the characters <laughs> went to such a strange and unusual place that they found one of the last and made a bargain with it. And it was beautiful and fantastic. And if I had spent that whole time going, right, but no, <laughs> never would have happened. So instead, just as I let Adam's father hand to him as a child a small storytelling device, and from that shift into this spacewalk on a defunct ship in the middle of nowhere with detritus floating around it, and what that journey is like. Because the beauty of stories is they can go anywhere, provided it's true based on what has happened before or what will happen next, right? I, there's a fundamental exercise I do with all of my clients, whether they're doing storytelling for business, for their own creative work, for hobby. There are three things you need to know to tell a good story. Your world and characters, where your tale begins and how it will end. A lot goes into those. There's a good number of truths, small and little, as well as untruths that go into defining those. But if you have that specificity, you'll know based on what's possible, based on what can happen, what should and will happen next in that moment. And the ending 
of that work, the ending, the thing you arrive at, the point you're giving this back to your tribe is the inevitability. It's the point where I have to act. I have to get the book. I have to buy the bottle of Shiraz. I have to make this part of my life. Mm-hmm. And that's the moment, big moment, where it sits in their hearts and resides. The smaller moment, of course, occurs in every scene because each of those scenes, those beats in between, has its own little life, its own little journey that you take them on. The rhythm, the music to that. I, I think, as I've mentioned to you before, I learned writing and music together. So hmm. for me, the best explanation which came to me by way of my folks is that grammar is musical notation. Hmm. It is there to arrange flow of words mm-hmm. and to help you understand how they should be played. Because I hate it, I struggled with it for so long until I got the why of it. Likewise, math. Math is simply a way of expressing through symbolic representation dynamics and systems and relationships in the world. Oh, me too. I like to say that if I had learned why behind math, I would have been all in. But I resisted math because everyone wanted to teach it by rote, the same way they teach grammar. Like, this is a noun and this has to go first. And you're like, but why? And so often we hear the story of the artist as one who has to go on a journey of suffering and then follow the Aristotelian model to deliver the great American novel. That's the movie story. That's the one we see in Hollywood films because it's limited in terms of time and capacity. And it has to be simple and concise. So yeah, you get the struggling because there's conflict and eventually there's a great breakthrough and then a huzzah moment and oh, we've arrived there because an hour and a half or two hours have gone by. The reality, you're not on video right now, but there are drafts upon drafts of work that I've revised. There's stuff that will never come to final light in the book. I had to practice. I had to write essentially three books to find one. Mm -hmm. Because, as you know, there's skill, there's effort, there's time, and there's a journey to that that does not end. Most the weirdest thing anyone ever said to me as a potential student was, I don't think at 40 I have anything left to learn. <laughs> and oh, that could sound arrogant. It wasn't, I think, intended to sound arrogant. And I don't think he meant to in that moment. But I was confused because then what are you living for? As an artist, if you think your creative capacity is complete, right? I was so confused by it. There's still things I learned today. And my students, that my students teach me that they help me find a way to define. Yeah. And there's joy in that too. Oh, I feel the same way. You know, it's, I'm a perpetual student and I love when a teaching relationship flips and you (laughs) become the student. That delights me to no end. I mean, it's just, to me, it's an exchange. And, um, just as we're learning from the person, we're learning from ourselves. And we're also learning from where that other person is in their life and the perspective that they bring based on they have children, they don't have children, uh, they're young, they're old, they've had physical ailments, they're perfectly healthy. Whatever that fresh energy is that you get from a student that is looking at things for the first time going, wow. And then you're like, oh, yeah, that's right. Wow. (laughs) Like, this is pretty cool. Like, I forgot how cool this was, you know, and I can remember back to being 16 and encountering this part of music for the first time as well. And it just renews your spirit. 
I, I remember reading Bradbury's There Will Come Soft Rains. And I'd been a prolific reader prior to that, but it was mostly stuff. I read There Will Come Soft Rains. And I thought, so that's what words can do. Mm. It's such a weird, somber, beautiful, strange piece. You read the Kilimanjaro device, which is his send off to Hemingway, hmm. where he tries both to emulate while also embodying his own style too. And I had a chance to listen to Bradbury shortly before he died. And hearing him speak cool. at the LA Times Book Fair, I could see finally how he tells stories. Hmm. Fundamentally, he was an orator that just wrote things down. Oh, wow. But his actual process involved having multiple typewriters. They slid back and forth between because he was not, he was a nonlinear thinker. See, that's what fascinates me. Thank you for sharing this because for me, process is like what you, you discover the tools with which you work that work for you. And maybe other people have a set of tools and a couple of those work for you. And, but there's such diversity within mm-hmm. the actual craft part of the art. There's the art, which is the thing you're, you're, seeing that you want to bring into the world there's the medium which is books or music or podcasts or whatever and then there's the the methods and the methods take developing the methods take learning and self-trust absolutely that's why when folks come to me i have beginning points we start with i have things i can use along the way on that journey right but a good portion of it is taking all that and adapting it to the way they work, to their own mind. Because you have to ultimately build, create your own set of tools that you can paint and illustrate and make the story you're trying to tell with. And part of the joy for me is, and I didn't think this would be true, but it is, the the art of crafting that with them, right? Of sitting down with a student, working on a timeline for the narrative and going, you know, I think a scattered chart would work here. And let's lay out a scatter chart that notes stories a child has heard before and after they were born and what the emotional weight of that was in terms of significance, in terms of value, in terms of tone or hue. And after we've mapped all of that out, let's see what story emerges out of this process. What look like the big moments? What are the little moments? And what becomes the, the why now, the starting point in the story of himself that he tells now? Right? Because for, in her case, trying to work from the big was stymieing, was terrifying. There were all these large dramatic moments, but she couldn't find the small ones that, put, that bring those together. The important lunch, right? The, the scene that doesn't seem like it should have any weight to it, but if you get down to the particulars there, all the truths of character and the story both are laid out. You know? Yeah, yeah. Okay, I have to go back to Ray Bradbury because yeah. nonlinear thinking, that's been my biggest critique that I've ex- that I've received in the business world is that people can't follow me when I'm like here, there, blah, 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 blah. And I, I know there's value in that. But I too, I tend to speak things. And when I speak, it's much easier to pull all this together. But what I find is that most people aren't auditory. Most people are visual or mm-hmm. some other 
kinesthetic or something. So tell me more about what you learned from Bradbury, because you said you had to be there to notice it. I've read a lot of Bradbury. (laughs) I've read most of his work. So I'm fairly familiar with his prose, with his style. I will give you this phrase he passed on to us at the end of the presentation, because the gist of his actual argument was that we have to write from love. As cantankerous and angry an old man as he was at times during the speech, his fundamental message was that you have to love the stories you're trying to tell and the people you're trying to want to give them to, to pass them on to. And the way he ended it was this. He said, man is the flesh of God moving through the universe. Mm -hmm. And you look at his stories of astronauts coming down to the visitor. There's a classic one for you, right? The ship of astronauts who keep on missing the arrival of the visitor. Every planet they go to and think it's one of their arrivals who is just scamming the locals. Hmm. But as they go on and on, that seems like either that's so true that it might be true or it's something else entirely, but I have to give up the story I'm attached to. Dandelion one, of course, is the classic, his actual mythologized take of his own childhood. Watching his neighbor build the happiness machine only to find that it's not something you can make by spare parts. You have to live it. The going down to the attic and finding the jars that say savor and relish and wondering what those words mean beyond the ingredients in the jar. And hearing him speak was like going to the Writers Museum in Dublin and listening to Joyce recite his work. Hmm. It unlocked the key from, I get intellectually how this works, to I hear and feel you now. It's why my professor James Reagan recites his work, because if you can be there listening, if he's not buried in his paper, but performing, reciting, orating the story inside the poem, embodying it, right? I passed on some of my work to a mutual friend of ours, Julia, who writes in the new weird a lot. And her book is coming out soon. And her reply to me was interesting. She said, there's such intentionality in this first-person narrative of Adam as a child. All of the words on the page seem to have such an emotional weight to them. They seem to matter more than they should to someone that age. Hmm. Like he's trying to not just describe, but define what is happening in that moment. And it's funny because like with my friend Nick, I was at a moment where I'm writing a funeral scene between two of the main characters. They're doing a short, a small funeral for Connor's older brother, both of them knew. And I don't remember the exact details, but he and Adam are talking. And this is way, way into the book here and into my writing. And Connor looks at Adam and goes, you're blind. As a question, Adam goes, I've always been. And I'm on the chill going, no. <laughs> no. So you didn't know this about this character until this moment. <laughs> no. <laughs> so, yeah, there's that kind of heart palpitating moment of, oh, fuck. What? <laughs> because, again, like with the dream, this was, I knew this to be a truth. I, I even, and I, I do this if you hear my, my voice notation, annotations, I have a recorder. I'll go, okay, I'll cue the critical mind. 
rolling back. We're going to circle back to there because I'm nonlinear in how I build scenes as I'm they're coming to me, right? Let's just go through that again. Follow the same truth, see where they lead. And of course, since they're true, they lead to that truth. And I get, I took a deep breath and went, okay. When I get home, I'm going to look over the prologue and see if that's always been true. And if my fear of, holy shit, do I have to rewrite the whole book again? <laughs> it's just a, a moment of passing. That's a and valid fear. So I went back to the prologue and I reread it. And you know what I realized? Because it's first person. This is just the story he's telling himself of what is. And in that second or third scene where he talks about how all of this began, this fight between his two parents, it's him trying to understand how these two divergent narratives of the world they provided for him occur and why he can't make sense of them anymore. Because where they used to be a unified idea, a way of the world being, he started to see the seams between the two, the ways in which one of them can't sustain the lie that the other would shape. And since all he can see is what they tell him is there and what they help him to see, he has to tell himself the story of everything that's there, the colors, the shapes, and everything. Hmm. And this goes back to the fantastic, right? This is where I had to accept it. In this world, there are those too full of fire and those who dream too much, and this is literal and figurative. Adam is the former. His mother is one of the latter. She can certainly help him to see in a way. It's not what is actually there, but it's a way to see. And I started writing these scenes of when he was a child, and they take him outside, and he'd run through the fields and then ask him, what color is the sky? What does that sheep feel like? Right? And as he would tell them what he thinks is there, they'd make it a little more like that for him. Hmm. So that this world could be real and true. And this is where I guess we'll come full circle. You know, I said back early on that I've been writing since I was two. I told my folks about this, about this village he lives in that isn't entirely real, but kind of a dream in a bubble they create for him. And when he realizes that, it the prologue is the moments before that collapse, right? It's beginning to understand how much of a lie there is here and why they fight. I told this story to my parents and they looked at me and they were speechless for a few minutes. Mm-hmm. And they said, when you were little, you told us a story about the village of no tears. And there was a village in which there were no tears and everyone was happy. And the child kept on asking, I want to see what the rest of the world is like. You say there are all these other places out there. And his parents kept on telling him, you don't want to go to the rest of the world. This place is fine. You can stay here. Everyone's happy here, right? Yeah. But he kept on insisting. They said, okay, fine. Let's pack your things. We're going to go on a little walk and we'll see what the other villages are like. So they go to the village where everyone's angry, the one where everyone's sad. And they go on their whole way around the road, around the path, till they're back. Or almost back. And he's get tired because he's a child. And he says, I want to go home, right? And they look and they go to each other and they look back at him and say, we know, but you can't. Hmm. And he goes, but why? And they have to explain to him that there is no village of no tears. Hmm. It's just what they told him it was like. <laughs> and sure enough, when he goes back, he sees that the village of no tears is the village where everyone's sad, where everyone's happy, where everyone's mad. Hmm. And 
in the book I'm writing now. Here it is. <laughs> and it just kind of found its way in to this home that Adam lives in, that he survived and that he left and could not return to because it was never real in the first place, not entirely. Huh. In that in the years after, in his adolescent years, he told himself or continued to kind of live in that story of what it was like because it was safer than trying to confront the reality of what happened mm-hmm. until he had to. And yeah, I had to, as Nick said, embrace the fantastic. I do believe it was possible for this to happen in this world and then ask and find out why. And the moment I did, yes, this is how a blind child, a blind, blind man sees mm. and what that world for him is like and how it is a little weird and magical and different. Mm-hmm. And, and someone else may say crazy, but they don't even know. So at, they can't, they can't know. <laughs> Only he knows. The, and I, I should have been able to, like, the, the amount of work I do, I should have been able to see this truth sooner because I look back to my old notes with my co-host, Dave, and we had had a similar conversation about the other narrator, Connor, right? So let's talk process as an example. I have two narrators in a book. There's two timelines now and then. First time I wrote the book, how many narrators do you think I had? One. And it was so damn confusing because you had no idea when anything was. I was talking to my advisor and she said, if you've got two timelines, why not have one person narrate each? Oh, I wouldn't have even thought of that. Because that way, the voice itself, the person telling the story, the story being told, lets you know where you are, where you're at, and why. Right. And the thing I added to that was, since it's two first-person narratives that juxtapose each other, all the pieces in between, the interstitials, mm-hmm. get to tell what the rest of the world is like. Right. Because that's what was demanding to be there. So allowing the things that have to be, the space to be, is a huge part of the creative process, regardless of the medium you're in. But I, uh, well, let me ask you something. Are you the son or are you the king? So here's the funny thing. After I had looked back on that, I asked myself, where is this story? This, the dream I had was being told by someone not there. It was being written down by someone describing this scene as through the perspective of the king at the time. And I realized later on that's Adam's father right now. And he's got this whole body of work he's been writing that he hasn't shared with his son. And to the end of the book, when Adam finally comes home, they find some of that. And it's been annotated. Hmm. And the annotations are not something his father would know. But his father's gone a different on a journey of his own kind. I'm not going to go into that here because that, there's a kind of full circle within that too. But the I had to know who was writing and finding the story because the final, the, the epilogue, as it were, comes back around to that world of that time and that narrative and that same person telling the story of what's happening now with Adam and this older woman who's guiding him through the frozen old ruins of this same place, the same city, so many years after everything has happened down to a tomb in the depths of the city. And there are things he sees on the wall, depictions, graphs, symbols, stuff that he you'll see in the prologue from one of the more surreal scenes in that. And what I'll share of it, because I don't want to spoil anything, when you want someone to continue with the story, you have to give them 
the thing that speaks to their heart, that makes them want to know, to demand why, right? And I'll give you this. Adam and Connor both wanted to revive the people they had lost, as well as all those who'd been lost in the process of them trying to find a way. And through most of the book, they find it's impossible. It just can't happen. So at the end of a book, either they have to accept that and move on, or there has to be some hope as to what they can do and why. Yeah. So the end of the book has to, the inevitability has to answer that somehow. I won't tell you how, mm-hmm. because that's the book. But the understanding of that led me to be able to go back through the book, rewrite it, return to the prologue, and to be able to accept now the, okay, yes, he's blind. Yes, there's a fantastic world within a world in terms of how he perceives things. And I'll be honest, there was a time where I went, I'm not going to talk about any of this shit on the podcast. But then I'm a storyteller and a storytelling coach. Part of what I do is help folks figure out how to tell their own, which necessitates that I walk you through the process, the choices we make, and why. So we can put spoiler tags in the episode itself around this if people don't want to engage in that element of it. But this is what I'm like when you're working with me. I'm usually a little more concise because we're telling more stories on a mm-hmm. podcast time. But you have to. This is why I work toward the specifics with you, because those give the answers. If we're talking business, it's you have to know your audience. You have to know what currencies they'll provide you, time, information, money, and why and for what. Right. Those, and I and I talk about audience, market, or tribe. I like the idea of tribe because in the nature of tribes, for all their flaws and problems, there's the idea of reciprocity. Right. One, that you're co-creating a thing or engaging in a thing together, but two, that you are here to provide for each other. Right. And if you're trying to sustain a relationship, it's one thing, we can go purely commercial top market if this is a transactional engagement. I have a thing I want you to buy. Here's what makes you buy it. Okay, let's go on. If I want you to be part of the things I write, to be my audience, to be my fans, to follow the show, to identify with the company, the brand, and engage in things we create and make. Yeah, then we talk tribe because that's where you sit down by the fire. You tell the stories at night. Mm-hmm. You identify with each other. Yeah, and there's a community to it. There's a connection to it. And it, this is the epiphany I had in music, and it's not a unique epiphany, which was that music genres have always exploded around a group People listen to rock and roll and do the twist and they dance. Or people do jazz and do the jitterbug. You know, people get together around punk rock and thrash and wear certain clothes. It's much about the group identity as it is about the art that's being identified around. There's a podcast about Nirvana you might like then. It's called Heart Shape Pod. (laughs) For two reasons. One, the host went in, the main host was a huge fan of Nirvana. And then he learned more about what Kurt was like. And that made his love of Nirvana more difficult. Mm. He brought in some other friends too, who had deeply personal reasons to be engaged in the grunge and that whole music. They were part of the tribe. One of them ended up sharing later on some of his own journal writings from that time. And they're they're terrible. And he (laughs) reciting angrily the person he was at that time in his life. How did I ever? But it's a, it's as much a journey about Kurt and his group of people creating music, right, as it is 
the folks who learned to love and like that coming to terms with the person he was beyond the character he had been in their life. Yeah. And, they, they, and you know what, that brings me back to the point about identity politics that I really care about is that people tend to deify or vilify humans that are mm. in the public attention. And it's so prevalent now to put people on a pedestal in the public life and then find out they're flawed and be like, we hate them now. We can't, we can't have anything to do with them or their work. And I, I just feel like that's so inaccurate. Um, I think if we, if we knew a lot more about James Joyce, there's a lot of people who, you know, if, if you had a personal view in his life, I don't know James Joyce, I haven't studied him, but I'm guessing that there was quite a bit of alcohol and probably some abuse and some terrible things that he might've said or done to people um, that, you know, just history doesn't have that same always on connection to the social media Twitter world that we have now with artists. And honestly, I think that's, that's part of why artists are so reclusive and private, especially authors, because they don't want their personal life to have anything to do with their literary life, especially if characters make choice like your general. Some readers might on social media see that as a reflection of you, Jared, and how you feel about the world and how could you do that, right? People have a really narrow view of art right now. I have a deep, dry, and very dark sense of humor. It's emergent on some of the podcasts more than others, but <laughs> for reasons I'm so profuse with emojis on social, is to let you know, no, I am not at all serious about the thing I just said. <laughs> because otherwise people will, in person and online, believe entirely what I have said. So I find it useful to cue, just so you know, and in case you didn't before, but just so you know, no, I'm not being serious about this. Uh-huh. But the, it's difficult because yes, there was a time where the artist, although yes and no, Dickens toured the States with A Christmas Carol because we were so busy pirating his work. Mm-hmm. So Mark Twain, likewise, was one of the first recorded celebrity writers. Yes, I, I was thinking about him yesterday. Audio, photo, the man went on tours. He he went to he's parties. Probably, he was a socialite. Chautauqua is one of the earliest we think of as a celebrity artist, right? He probably no doubt got a lot of his material from these engagements of getting to know various peoples in social life because he was a satirist. Cantankerous, grouchy, <laughs> acerbic human being. Yeah. And... One of my friends, Fanta Koi, they have been running their webcomic for a few years now, have a tremendous following, but they did have a struggle at one point with a younger audience wanting, and their families wanting the story to take a lighter tone and approach when it was in all likelihood it headed somewhere much darker. Mm-hmm. And I tried to say it was, Watership Down is fluffy bunnies. Watership Down also is fluffy bunnies that murder each other. It's not... <laughs> But I think society needs that outlet, too. I mean, that's been the argument about violent video games, but honestly, the it needs somewhere to go. We need murdering bunnies. <laughs> Watershed Bond book is an incredibly interesting, weird, and complex, and you want to talk new weird, it borders on it. Mm-hmm. Rabbits fleeing for their lives, engaging in war, and reflecting upon the mythologies that guide them. <laughs> it sounds and, delightful. <laughs> And in between, of course, there are, you know, rabbits and hares eviscerating each other. Uh 
as I said, it's a war and they're trying to survive. Yeah. And although if you want a deeply weird, dark take on it, someone, I think it was the robot chicken crowd did a take on Watership Down with uh, the Fraggles. Oh, that's amazing. And it's really dark. <laughs> but it works because the, there's that same level of naivete in the initial forays out into the world there. And it's hard. You know, I was talking to my friend Ken the other day about how he's struggling with these essays t- going into the racist depictions of minority species and right. creature works. In- it's a big issue right now. Yeah. And how those are to the creators of the time, or were to the creators of the time, representative of minorities. Lovecraft is a prime example. The shambling, incomprehensible masses were a deliberate analog for the peoples he did not like or understand. Mm. So yeah, there's... I I tease one of my my co-hosts about this because you get into arguments about hermeneutics, the interpretations, the whether the life of the artist matters in the work of the artist. Oh, right. And whether their intent matters in the experience of the work. And we can get into arguments about art is dead, God is dead, all that, because it's fundamentally the same argument. Mm -hmm. I go back to a few things here. First, if you want to create in the world we have now and you want people to engage in it, you have to engage with the world. That means finding the place that's comfortable, safe, and right for you and the tribes you want to work with and be a part of. I'm on Discord because it's a home for me. I'm on Twitter because a lot of writers are. I am not on Facebook because that's where a lot of writers aren't in a broad sense. We have Facebook communities, but it's a, it's hard, I would say, in a 20,000-person community to really get any deep level or Q&A ongoing. There's just so much stuff, right? And part of why I'd like Discord is that we create a population that folks get invited to. We share, and yeah, we create our own little sub-languages and all that, but it's an opt-in. You choose to be a part of this and participate. So everyone committed to the work has that same goal in mind. And again, Discord can be used for the worst things too, but it's a... Well, I think that's what the internet did. The internet allowed people to come together, not around location or society groups, but around interests. Yeah. Needs interest and desires. Needs wants and desires, let's be honest. And it's revolutionary. It's like you said, and it could be the best thing and it could be the absolute worst thing. It can host all manner of humanity. And it's just the medium. What I would say is if you want to be a creator now in a professional sense, to have your work shared and sold or engaged in publicly, be present. Find a way that people can see and hear and feel and think about you in a way that feels natural to you. My, one of my coaches, she kind of likes to work off of the five languages of love approach, but expand them more into how we interact with the world. Oh, cool. As you and I, we're both auditory. However, when it comes to personal interaction, being among people and friends and family, I need physical presence, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, it's, it's been very hard for me to do this podcast without being able to have people in the room with me, because that's how I yeah. draw people out. I, I'm perfectly fine recording episodes all the time, but if I want to just be with people, I want to be with people in a space doing a thing. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't think of that in me in, an invi- you know, in a recording setting, in a scholarly setting where I'm at the front looking, making notes. 
My teachers used to chide me for doodling all the time. Mm-hmm. A lot of research has gone to show that's just a physical expression of how the brain is making sense of a thing. Right. And why would they tell you to stop doodling as if, you know, everyone's the same. Everyone's a carbon copy. Anyway, I, I, yeah, I can get very on a soapbox about that. But go on. At that point, the, the story that most teachers and where I was believed or engaged in was this behavior is a sign of not paying attention. The reality is I need to do a physical thing so I can pay attention. Mm-hmm. My hands and body need to be occupied doing a thing. It's why I can't do zazen, sitting meditation, but tai chi, yoga, swimming, hiking, right. those get into the place where I can create, I can find. That's why you're coming up with insights in the shower or on a walk? It's a, you have to, and this is why I said before, you have to take the wisdom, the advice given to you by your guides, your coaches, and with them, amend it, revise it to what works well for you. Mm -hmm. So true. It's not gospel. It's what's worked for them and what they see in you. And you have to take that without ego and say, maybe they're seeing something I'm not. However, you also have to have your own empowerment of going, I know what's right for me. I know what works for me. I'm blind and they can't see that. I go through the world and I know I'm blind, but they don't know that. (laughs) And that's one of the beauties of writing Adam, because not being fully aware that the world he sees is different from the world other people see. I wrote it that way anyway. Yeah. I Things he sees are a little off-color or weird or fantastic because he grew up in this deeply sheltered, cloistered life and survived mostly on the stories that were given to him. And in the small part of the world he was in, survived and escaped that, couldn't return to it, and was suddenly confronted by everything else outside. And he is, it's fascinating because he's the kind of person who will get through anything physically, but the amount of damage and wreckage left behind in the soul and the psyche on the way there to get by. It's one thing writing him when he's on his own and just kind of living through it. But, and here's a great example, he hates baths. As in, it's fine for him to go jump in a river or a lake and wash up. But the idea of you need a bath, here is soap, here is perfume, here is shower, here is all these other things to make you fit into the world. Yeah. Yeah. He hates baths. And I didn't fully get why, but now I do, because that's all part of some alien life that doesn't fully make sense to him. Right. And, you know, and I can joke about this in a different sense, because I did have the teachers way back when that said, Take archetypes, create them, give them a twist. And I applied, you know, the zodiac and all the things like that. And yeah, the book is called Here Be Tigers. But if we're talking Chinese zodiac, his sign is a tiger. That was a truth I found a while back. Does it define him entirely? No. But you want to know something funny? When I had to write, because it's here be tigers with an S, there's plural, and tigers Y, as in Blake's tiger, tiger, or here there be tigers, the thing there used to right on maps, et cetera, to indicate the world that was unknown and still horrifying. Hmm. I don't plan for this. I, looking back, go, oh, right. That's what that is, too. Connor got into fights with his older siblings often and violently. And eventually his parents, they're divorced. His father says to his mother, he's yours. You take him. I can't. Huh. Just, he's yours. I'm done. So she 
drags him off to her house, which is packed, and there's only room in the attic for him. And I saw the scene as I was writing where she's trying to get him comfy. It's one of those attics with the pointed gable roof, and there's that window, usually like a little seat right before it, right? Yeah. Into a bed with a pillow, and he's sitting down there, and she walks in with this little stuffed tiger of plush and velour and velvet and felt and whatever else made she could find, and no two stripes the same. Huh. And they talk. But in that moment I was first writing, all I knew was that she walked in with a stuffed animal. I mean, everything you just described, I can see, by the way. Yeah. Because you were very and, descriptive. But to, to arrive there, right? All I knew initially was stuffed animal. Right. It has to be a tiger. I don't know why, but it has to. And then they start talking, and she explains to him is that this can take all those awful feelings you have and eat them and put them away mm-hmm. so that you don't need to have them anymore. And she's trying. She's a mother of seven, one child's past birth. She's divorced, making a living on her own income. Yeah, she's doing what she can here, right? So yeah, here's a magical stuffed toy that can eat your bad feelings and make them go away. Is this a lie? Absolutely. But does it work? If it works, perfect, let's try it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She tells him the story, and he goes, but that's not what real tigers do. They eat people. And she says, well, this one's different, right? right? Why? Because it's stuffed. And that was the thing I realized. Fundamentally, he goes, he would go deep enough into the why, the why, the why, that her final reply more or less is, because I said so. <laughs> and he buys it because the story is so strong. I'm saying this is true about this thing in the world that I've created and given to you. Isn't that what magic is? Yeah. And then finally, when I went back to rewrite after all of that, I'm going to the scene where Connor, after traveling for five years on his own in the war, goes to find Adam again to try one last time. And I have this description of Connor when he sees him. You know, so he's standing at the door at Adam's house and he hears Adam and his son behind walking up, turns around to see him. And this is the first time you're getting Connor's perspective on what Adam is like, because it's first person. Prior to that is Adam's perspective on Connor, the first time they met in an earlier scene, chapter two. And I, in Connor describing, I couldn't help but go back to that idea of the tiger because in meeting this person, he met the monster he was told he never should become. Mm. Adam is left out feral in the wild to fend for himself. He's going to wear his stripes. Connor is the youngest of seven. He learns to scrap and to fight and to hold on to that little thing and give to it what can't, you know, the monstrous about him, right? And here now, finally, in his travels, he's met what that actual beast is like. And I didn't intend for that symmetry at all, but the moment I did, I went, yeah, it's Here Be Tigers. Which is also the name of your company. Yeah, I pitched it there. I, uh, I'll see if I can remember this right. I'm not going to do the whole pitch, but the, the thing I ended on, and maybe we'll end here, is because no idea can grow from mewling striped cub to teeth at your throat tiger without a little help some guidance, and a whole lot of love along the way. Where can, first of all, I know you have a place where people can get a hold of you if they want to work with you. You opened a story loop at the beginning of this episode with your friend and the rooftop and the New York scene and the trespassing. If people want to find out what happened (laughs) and hear the whole story of that, they can reach out to you in this particular place. Where is that? The best places to find me nowadays are one, herebetigers.com. That's with a Y. That's where you have 
most of the information about what I do as a business. Although we're launching a new service this month and we have one up and running now. The one up now is called 20 Minutes to Brilliance. That's our complimentary session where we sit down and find a great idea for you right now based on wherever you're at, the confusion, the inertia, the need for clarity. So that's 20minutestobrilliance.com. 20 is in 20.com slash tigers, again, with a Y. And you can sign up there and get your complimentary session. I'll put these links in the show notes too, by the way. So check them out. Thank you. The one we're going to launch next is our 90-minute deep dive. People have been pretty receptive to that, but it's an hour and a half session where we go into the thing, the challenge you're with, you're at, and find the solution. Sink our teeth into it, take a leap, right? I, I find an hour and a half is a good point to both get into the need, the want, the desire, and then where you'll be at or where we'll arrive and how you'll feel when that's done, along with the solution the journey, right, that gets you there. So that'll be later this month. And I've offered this to one of the other shows that's going to be rolling out, but we can talk, you and I, Steve, about maybe giving a couple of those to some lucky audience members. Oh, I would love that. Yeah, let's do that. That's fine, because it's, I find it, I've not received this kind of gift before, that one and a half to two hour conversation with an expert, with a guide, with someone who can help you past and move beyond the place you're at right now. Simply knowing there is a thing you can do, a specific action you can take, you come to me with the specifics. We'll find the solution that works for you. Well, you are, Jared, a maven. You're the kind of person who knows something about everything and not just something, but a lot of something. <laughs> so the word that comes to my mind is illuminate. There's certain things that you discovered along the process of writing your book that didn't change your narrative, but they illuminated it. They put a light on it that you didn't see it from that angle before. And now with this new knowledge, you can now move forward and flesh out the rest of your journey in this book or this creation. So what I would I want to let people know that you do is you help to illuminate their path. And I could think of no better person to say that for <laughs> when it comes to coaching people through not just their stories, but also the creative process. And I want to thank you personally for this hour and a half long therapy session that I just received. I was crying at some moments because some things you said very deeply resonated with me on a personal level. So you just need to know that. Before I forget, the thing you just said, I, I have to share with you. I wrote a mission statement years ago about what I was setting out to do. And this is in my 20s, you know, back when I'm going to save the world. And there's a phrase you talk about, illuminate, toward the end of it where I describe lighting a candle along the way for the stumblers in the dark. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Just, mm -hmm. So yeah, uh, illuminate is the right word. Just trusting the way will show itself and to move in that direction. Even if it hasn't become apparent or clear in your vision yet, it's deep down, it's there. So The, the thing I'll, I guess I'll end with to kind of we want to talk process just to think about as a contemplation. Gladwell talks about the 10,000 hours, right? The, the genius. It's a, a rubric. It's not exact, an exact number. I don't know the I don't know how many stories I've read at this point or how many I've reread or processed or gone through. But if you don't know what your brilliance is yet to play off of illumination, think about what you've dedicated so much of your life to already. Mm. What story that is, what work that is, a thing you've tried to express. 
then listen to this again. Absolutely true. Um, Jared Surf, thank you for being on the Language of Creativity podcast. One last thing, is there anywhere on social media that people can follow you? Sure. So on Twitter, you can find me at Jsur the Realist. I have to really switch that because it's like 11 or 12 years old now. I'm probably going to toggle everything over to at HB Tigers with again with a Y. So on his H-B-T-Y-G-E-R-S. Yes, someone else had here be. Mm-hmm. I am. I have to get rid of them. <laughs> <laughs> you must. You send the killer bunnies after them. I'm thinking a little more Highlander, but that works too. Hey, I dig it. <laughs> All right. And then your book that's coming out is called Here Be Tigers. It's not out. It is going to be out. I'll be putting more of it up on Medium. There, You can follow the work as I write it on Patreon. We're doing oh, hell yeah. Work. Okay. And so you have a Patreon. So we will also link that in the notes. Jared Surf, thank you for being here as always illuminating to talk to you. Let's do this again. I'm glad we were able to do this. We're going to create our own stories and say that we're done being in pain and that we're creating a brighter future. Sounds good, man. If you like our show, please review and subscribe to get notified about future releases. This is the Language of Creativity Podcast.